This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 608, and we welcome Dr. Lisa Brasso. Uh, Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and control banning. It's going to be an interesting discussion, a pretty popular technique in the industrial hygiene world. But before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor, returning sponsor, is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Learn more at graywolfsensing.com. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope, the future of IAQ assessment, unlimited sampling with instant results at instascope.co. Association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. The American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. What I'd like to do is introduce Dr. Lisa Rousseau, um, now retired, was a professor at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health from 2015 to 2018. She was the director of the Illinois Education and Research Center, which supported graduate and continuing education for occupational health and safety professionals and continuing her community outreach activities. She was also the director of the UIC Center for Healthy Work. She began her career as an academic researcher and educator at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, where she directed the industrial hygiene program. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brasseau. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you with us. Let's let's jump right into first. I want to get an idea of how you got started in the industrial hygiene field, a little of your your background, if you would. Um, It's kind of unusual for people to I always wonder how people got started in industrial hygiene. Right. Um, You know, I was going to be, um, you know, an oceanographer or an environmentalist like Rachel Carson. That's the time period I grew up in. And I took environmental studies in my undergrad before it was even a major. So I sort of made it a major. And then I started looking for jobs, and the only jobs I could find were with oil companies, and that wasn't exactly what I was looking for. I ended up working for an insurance company um, doing safety consulting, uh, loss control, as they call it. Uh, Somebody, you know, I talked to a few industrial hygienists, and they said, this is what you, you know, this is the kind of job you should do if you don't want to go back to school right away. And uh, that was a great training ground, three years of on the road inspecting uh, workplaces. I learned a huge amount and I realized how little I really knew. And then I applied to 
a master's program. And when I was done with that, I just decided I loved being a student and I stayed for my doctorate. And I realized I wanted to be a researcher and academic. So, um, but industrial hygiene appeals to me because um, there's always a problem to solve, another problem to solve. And it, it is, uh, it, you know, you're helping people. It, it makes a difference to people and you get to use science. So all those are what appealed to me. We talked a little yesterday before the show. You mentioned that Alice Hamilton was one of your, your heroes, I guess. Uh, one of mine as well. Uh, fascinating person. Uh, and it's it's great to see. I think younger people are starting to get more involved in the industrial hygiene world and also seeing more females and minorities. It's, it's great to see. It's uh, because we're losing a lot of the, you know, you're retired now and a lot of the folks that have been in the business for a long time are, uh, you know, slowly retiring. How do we get more how do you think we get more young people interested in the topic? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I think um, more of them are becoming interested in public health, and that might be a, that's one good way. Of you know, the, if they go into public health, they don't really know what it is anyway. And uh, we found that to be a good recruiting ground. Um, also, people who think they want to be uh, physicians or nurses realize that occupational health and safety can be very rewarding. Um, and, and you get to work on the front end, right, in the prevention area rather than in the treatment area. So that's, that's also appealing. I think uh, kids just need to understand how much fun science is. You know, it's not about memorization. It's not about knowing a ton of facts. It's about solving problems and problems that are really important to people. Maybe climate change is going to get more people interested in science. I mean, kids realize the world around them is really important and we, we have to do what we can to protect it. Well, this current topic we're going to talk about today, you mentioned public health and I think you're dead on that a lot of more people are getting interested in public health and learning about it. Let's talk a little bit about how those two are kind of coming together right now. We want to talk about control banding. First, if you could tell listeners what what you what your definition of control banding is and maybe how it's used in the industrial hygiene world. Sure. Uh, you know, control banding started out in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, they were the first to realize that they were never going to be able to come up with enough exposure limits in a timely manner for all the different hazardous materials. And they're very hazardous because of course they're, they're chemicals, right? That, and you only need small amounts of them. So any worker exposed to a small bioactive material is going to have a could have serious health outcomes. And so they, um, but all they usually had was some animal toxicity data and not, not much epidemiology. So they realized that if they were going to protect workers, they had to come up with some other way to make decisions about uh, what what controls should be in place for different um, you know different medicines and pharmaceuticals that were being manufactured, and um, so they came up with a way. It basically allows you to uh, prior you know allocate uh, the material itself and the task of people doing into, into bands. And those bands then give you some, um, some guidance about what to do to protect people. What, and that's, you know, that's why we call it control banding. And it's a qualitative method, but it's informed by science. It's informed by professional judgment. 
uh, it has a um, systematic way of making decisions. And that's what I, as a, as a researcher and a scientist, I, always, I think it's really important that industrial hygienists and, and scientists in general use, use a systematic process for making decisions, whether it's quantitative or qualitative. Let's do this. Um, we have a little PowerPoint presentation you sent, and I'd, I'd kind of like to use that to see how control banding would be used with COVID-19 and, and in helping with determining what types of responses and protection you need for COVID. Uh, John, let's put up that first slide. There we go. Go ahead, Dr. Brousseau. Sure. So, and those those who've watched my webinars previously are going to know, are going to recognize a number of these slides. So, um, instead of the hierarchy of controls, which is a very traditional way of thinking about controls um, in in a priority order for industrial hygienists, uh, when it came to thinking about infectious diseases and especially ones that might be aerosol transmissible. It occurred to me and colleagues that maybe there was a different way of thinking about this. And part of the problem was that we're trying to cross some different fields when we talk about infectious diseases. We're trying to include physicians, nurses, healthcare, infection control, prevention folks. And they think about the hierarchy of controls a little differently than we do. So, but they do recognize and understand this source pathway receptor approach. So basically, um, a source is, is the person, in this case, who creates or emits um, respiratory aerosols or, in, or, or, or respiratory emissions of some sort of fluids that, are, that contain infectious material. And I've circled this person in a call center. These are pictures of, of uh, places where we've seen a lot of, we've seen clusters and outbreaks. And there've been a lot of those in workplaces. So a call center, um, it's a lot of talking, people are sitting near each other, so anybody could be a source. And then um, eventually as that person talks, you have a, the creation of, you know, the generation of aerosols, and those aerosols eventually spread throughout the whole space. And that's, and then they reach a receptor. So keep, keep pushing the buttons here. There we are. So the aerosol particles fill the you know, fill the room, and then you end up with someone as a receptor. And that receptor, of course, the person right near a source is, is at most risk, but eventually, you push the button one more time, you'll get to anyone can be at risk and anyone can be a receptor. So that's the sort of underlying way of thinking about this. And that gives us a way to think about um, a hierarchy. You should start at the source, work your way through the pathway, and then if you really have to do controls, uh, at the receptor, the, those are usually like personal protective equipment, but we need to focus on source and pathway first. So that right. the next slide, oh, sorry, I should wait and see if you have questions about that. <laughs> well, I, I just want to, if you could go back one, John. Now, I think we're making the assumption here that this is an aerosol transmission as opposed to droplet. Is that accurate to say? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. And that is what I usually start with when I talk about this subject is uh, that aerosol uh, exposure is probably a more important method of transmission than contact or droplet. I don't rule those out entirely. 
But droplet transmission usually is defined as coughs and sneezes and large particles and very being very close. And we're seeing a lot of asymptomatic transmission. So that would mean people don't have, there isn't coughing and sneezing going on. So that argues for, and we're also seeing transmission in spaces that are larger than just the six feet apart, you know, many, and transmission beyond six feet. So that suggests that there are particles that are being um, distributed throughout an, uh, an airspace. And that, uh, and, and it's inhalation. And aerosol transmission implies inhalation, both near the source as well as far away from the source. So yeah, okay. you're right. I, I focus on aerosol transmission. Okay, and I think that was important to set up as we go through this because, and, and yep. I guess I have a question for you on that too. So let's say a droplet. So as I speak, there are droplets, small droplets that come out. They drop to the surface pretty quickly, but then they dry out. And that particulate that was within that droplet is now more likely to be re-entrained. Is that accurate to say? It is. Actually, we generate particles across a wide range of sizes, all the way from less than one micron to, you know, well over 100, especially if, if there are coughing or sneezing. So, um, and what happens with particles, larger particles, you're right, they evaporate, but and evaporation is actually really quick, usually, especially at lower humidities. But and I noticed somebody's asking about humidity, and humidity can play a role, but um, you know, in a typical 40 to 50 or 60% relative humidity, you're gonna get fairly quick evaporation of larger particles to smaller ones. And it usually happens before they uh, deposit to, or you know, settle due to gravity. So you actually end up with many, many small, smaller particles, lower than say 10 microns or five microns. And those are particles that can stay airborne for, for quite a long time, you know, more than minutes even. And the smaller you get, it's, we're talking like hours and maybe even days. And those are in, all, of, all those particles I talked about are inhalable, but particularly the ones that are lower than, say, 10 or 20 microns. They'll land in your nose or they'll make it, the way, make it down into your respiratory system. Which I, I think just adds to the... Uh, weight of evidence that yeah it's there's probably very likely aerosol transmission but frankly we just don't know for certain is that accurate and and we don't know what dose is necessary to cause someone to develop symptoms and or to go into a full-blown case of COVID-19. Oh, there's two other talks. <laughs> okay. <All laughs> so, uh, I, give, I give a talk about aerosol transmission, and, um, and you're asking just the right questions. You know, how, how much uh, exposure is there, and is there going to be an infectious dose? And you're right, we don't actually know about the infectious dose for this organism, but I suspect, based on animal studies, and what we know about similar organisms like influenza and SARS, that is probably fairly low. And by fairly low, I mean around maybe 100 or 200 uh, virions, virus particles. Um, what we don't know is how many virus particles people emit, you know, infectious ones, viable ones. We don't actually have very much data. There's one study with exhaled breath um, that does suggest that we emit a lot of 
uh, viral RNA in our, you know, that's what they measured in particles that were exhaled, but they didn't measure viability. So we don't know how much of that, those particles are, are actually gonna cause infection. And then we don't actually know how many particles you have to get to be infected. But in terms of biological plausibility of aerosol transmission, like I said, that's a whole nother talk I give. There's a lot of data to support that. There's, uh, there's data to support that, of course, we generate aerosols when we speak and talk and, and, and breathe and, and sneeze and, and sing. Um, and for influenza infected people, they've been able to measure both viral RNA and viable um, virus in people's emissions. So, and, and also for people with other forms of coronavirus. So there's no reason to believe that wouldn't occur. And there have been air, there's you know, been a little bit of air sampling in, in hospitals, especially that have shown uh, both viral RNA and viable virus, um, culturable virus. So I would say we have plenty of evidence to, to support that there's uh, viable aerosol generation from people. Um, you know, the, and the pathway, we know as well, this is, a, this is an organism that survives for a while in air based on some experimental studies, at least a couple of hours. That's a plenty of time for an aerosol to get distributed in a space. And then we know that the receptors uh, for this organism, the ACE2 receptors, are located throughout the respiratory system. So there's, those are all the three criteria you need for biological plausibility, and I think they're well satisfied. So let's go to the next slide. I wanted to kind of set the table and make sure we had that background stuff down first before we get into more detail here. So now sure. we're into examples of source control. Uh, so the next couple of slides are just going to give some, some examples of how you might think about controls in these three buckets, source, pathway, and receptor. So source controls I usually think of as what, do you, what can you do with respect to the source, which is people. Uh, you know, mobile people are mobile point sources, basically. And obviously what happened in early in the pandemic in many places is as many, we, the recommendation was for as many people to stay home and do and work remotely. Some of us are still doing that um, as possible. Of course, there are many essential workers for whom that was not possible. Uh, there's been uh, more, there's been a, the addition of screening and testing um, as time goes on Screening isn't always very effective if people don't have symptoms, but testing can prove to be uh, effective, especially if you do it on a fairly regular basis. Um, and then you can be have more assurance about the fact that there will not be sources in your workplace. And of course, you could adjust the work schedule to limit people, the number of people or the time that they spend in a, in a space. So those are the things we would I would recommend for source control. You notice I didn't put face coverings on the list because I don't think of them as very good source control. So if we go to the next slide, that talks about pathway controls. And pathway controls basically are trying to break the point, you know, the, the, the distribution of particles from a source to a receptor. And those uh, people have put up, they're using a lot of barriers. That's what that top picture is showing you, but I'm not convinced barriers are gonna do a lot of good for aerosol transmission over time because you're gonna get distribution of particles all through space. They might prevent the transmission of larger droplets um, directly forward or maybe to the side, but um, 
I don't see barriers as being a really effective solution. But I do see increasing the number of air changes per hour, uh, possibly you know, changing the way people interact with each other. Um, there has been discussion about physical distancing, and unfortunately that works only you know, a little because certainly it prevents you from being exposed directly to the, the air emissions from somebody, the respiratory emissions from somebody nearby, but eventually you'll get distribution of particles throughout the space. So, you know, in industrial settings, we would use local exhaust ventilation. And wouldn't it be nice if we could all just have our own little LEV hood that we could all walk around with? But yeah. <laughs> until we figure that out, um, you know, these portable air cleaners might be a good solution to um, making sure that we really have the air changes per hour and the air cleaning in the space. Okay. So we've done source pathway. Now let's go to receptor controls. Right. And, you know, I throw control booths in or, you know, uh, booths that or spaces that isolate people. I'll throw that a little while when we talk about the example for control banding. Those might be pathway or receptor controls, but basically you're trying to uh, pr protect the person who's, who's not infected but could be infected. But usually we talk about personal protective equipment in the context of uh, receptor controls, and that would be respirators, not face coverings and not surgical masks, neither of which uh, have very good filters and they don't fit very well and they don't prevent outward leakage. If you were a fit-tested respirator, you have both good source control and good personal protection. So that, that's what I have been focused on in workplaces is um, if you have to, if you really can't get all those other things to work, then a respirator is the best solution. Let me go, there's a text question here. I want to kind of use that to demonstrate what you're talking about. And that is the use of positive air pressure is used to move clean air to dirty air. Can you comment on the use of air pressure to control air movement? And then if you could let me know, which of the three buckets does that fall into? It's a good question. I think it probably falls into the pathway control. And I, you know, a positive pressure or negative pressure, that's actually used a lot in, in uh, healthcare settings uh, where you can separate wards or separate spaces, um, negative pressure isolation rooms, you can and use pressure to ensure that the move, you know, that air, dirty air doesn't move into a clean space. Um, I think in offices and commercial buildings and other workplaces, that's a little bit more complicated. I mean, certainly we use it in clean rooms and, and other, other, some other work settings, but it's, um, you know, even in hospitals, it doesn't always work, right? So I'm sure you've probably read those research papers that have gone around and evaluated uh, uh, negative pressure rooms in hospitals, and you often find that they are, don't actually operate the way you expect them to. Mm -hmm. They're hard to get them to actually continue to maintain the, the pressure differential. So, but I think it has a place, but it's complicated. Well, right? and I and, think... When we get into your example later of a bus driver, I think that might be a good time to revisit this this question. Right. All right. Let's go to the next slide then, John. This third bucket would be, or did we get to the receptor bucket yet here? Yeah, we yeah, did. Okay. We, so we did the receptor. So we set the set the 
the source, the pathway, and the receptor. Now let's go into the actual controlled banding, and uh, I'll let you take it on here. Sure. So uh, the two articles that talk about controlled banding that are relevant to this discussion are listed over on the left. The first was uh, one I wrote, um, led by Dr. Sitsuma at UIC, and we wrote this with colleagues at NIOSH and CDC. And it was a, you know, a thought piece, a control banding thought piece, in preparation for aerosol transmissible diseases. Mostly, the, you know, the focus was on influenza because that's what we've been doing for years is planning for a pandemic related to influenza. Um, and the purpose was we knew from H1N1, novel H1N1, that we were going to have a shortage of, of supplies, especially personal protective equipment. And so the purpose was to try and uh, encourage employers to start thinking about um, not counting on respirators and trying to think about how would we do controls using a control banding method that focuses on source and pathway controls rather than receptor controls. And you, as we all know, the first thing that happened, of course, was that healthcare, we said, we said everyone in healthcare should, should, all the respirators should be saved for them and everyone else should be doing something else. You know, so that's, and, and then they ran out of supplies. So just as we expected, that's what happened. Then I wrote a second paper that's in the Annals of Work Exposures and Health that looks at COVID-19 specifically and talks, it, it basically builds on the same model from the first paper. And this is what we proposed, that you should, you could divide things up into three bands and depending on where you end up in the, which band you end up in tells you what you should do in terms of using source pathway and receptor controls. If you're in path A, you shouldn't have to use receptor controls. If you're in path, if you're in band B, maybe, but only if you've satisfied that all source and pathway controls are not effective and you end up in the highest risk category, band C, then it might be prudent to add a respirator or a personal protective equipment to the, you know, the whole combination of source and pathway uh, controls that you're using. Okay. Cliff, so we go to the next... Oh, sure. Go ahead. I just want to make sure Cliff didn't have a follow-up question or wanted to make clarify anything. Cliff? Well, no, but I'll, I'll tell you, let's catch that one text question that, that we had, you know, in regards to humidity. Oh, okay. And how humidity levels are taken into consideration. Did right. You, I know you commented on it briefly, but do you want to comment on that again? So, let me see. The you know, humidity in terms, I talked about humidity in terms of particles. People have also asked me, does humidity matter when it comes to viability and um, transmission? Because uh -huh. it, and there is evidence that humidity and temperature matter in terms of influenza transmission, for example. And we think that maybe one of the reasons why influenza is seasonal that it's more viable at low humidity and low temperature than it is at high humidity and high temperature. There is some suggestion that SARS-CoV-2 is similarly infect, affected by um, relative humidity and temperature, but I'll tell you the evidence don't suggest that there's a seasonality or climate um, impact 
for SARS-CoV-2, and that's probably because we're all pretty naive with respect to this infection. So we're all susceptible. Eventually, if this human coronavirus becomes, uh, you know, more common, or if, if it enters the normal circulation of infectious respiratory viruses, like a lot of human coronaviruses do, then it is possible it'll become uh, more seasonal and, and there'll be climate and season effects. But I don't think that's the case right now. What about the receptor? If, if we are in a low humidity environment, does that make us a better receptor? Um, probably not. I think receptor, you know, uh, getting an infectious dose has to do with inhalation. And inhalation is not really impacted by relative humidity or temperature. It depends on the particle size. It depends on our breathing rate. It depends on the concentration in the air. Uh, so those are the things that play the biggest role in how much uh, of how many particles we're going to breathe in. Um, and its size really determines where they're going to land in the respiratory system. Okay. Let's go back to the slides, John. So we, we've got the first part of the control banding, um, the ABC buckets here, the bands. All right. Let's go on to the next one. Okay. So um, there are basically, maybe we want to go ahead just one more. Okay. Yeah. So I can show you what happens. So at the end of the day, this is what we're going to do. We're going to use this um, exposure rank and the risk rank to figure out what control band a job is or a task is uh, falls into. And so I'll talk a little bit about the exposure rank, but um, in the as shown in the previous slide, but this the risk rank has to do with toxicity. So usually control banding requires that you know something about the exposure and you know something about the uh, toxicity. If we had um, better information, we could make an exposure limit, right? If we, I mean, that's what you really want, is to have an exposure limit and a way to sample the exposure. And then you could compare those two. That's what we do in industrial hygiene normally. But we're missing exposure limits and we're missing good ways to evaluate exposure. So we're, that's why we fall back to exposure to this control banding. This is a risk group three organism, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is similar to SARS and uh, TB, for example. And that means it doesn't, you could end up with pretty serious uh, outcomes, disease outcomes, and we don't have a lot of preventive uh, vaccines, for example, or therapeutic interventions. So NIH has designated this as a risk group three organism. So let's go back to the previous slide and we can talk a little bit about exposure. And we tried to come up, so this, this was the one, this was the area we spent the most time on trying to figure out how to make this both simple but relevant um, in terms of thinking about exposure. And we know that exposure equals concentration times time. That's the usual way of thinking about it. But concentration, as I said, you can't really measure it. So we sort of used a, what we called likelihood. Um, how likely was it that you're going to be coming you come in contact with infectious individuals? And what does that likelihood look like? So unlikely, you won't have much contact. Possible exposure, you might have numerous contacts who could be infectious. 
and likely you could be working directly that with infectious individuals. That would be like if you're caring for patients, for example. So that was sort of a way to encompass concentration. And then duration, we, we just um, tried to come up with a very simplistic way of thinking about this, a short time, a moderate time, or a long time. And based on hours of the day, usually people work about eight to 10 hours. So that's how we ended up with exposure. That gives you an exposure rank, basically. And then you go to the next slide, you now can see you combine that exposure rank with the risk rank and you end up with a band. And can you give, us an, example, uh, can you give us an example of R4? We talked about that yesterday a little uh, yeah. bit. Risk group four, uh, they're rare, but um, we're, the one we're most familiar with is Ebola. The, um, and it's because we don't certainly don't have a vaccine for it. And uh, being infected, a very small number of people recover from infection from Ebola, but it's, uh, it's a very uh, hazardous and high mortality organism. So you really, you, you know, these risk grants were developed for doing research with organisms. If you're gonna work with Ebola, you have to work under very, very controlled biosafety level four conditions. And that's a, that's a, that's a, there are not a lot of places you can even do that in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay, what I'd like to do here, Dr. Brosseau, is, is we're going to take a break and, and thank our sponsors at halftime here. We'll be back with Dr. Sure. Lisa Brosseau uh, for the second half. We're talking COVID-19 and control banding, fascinating stuff. We'll be right back. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope, do more jobs faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology, unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at iaqa.org. The Restoration Industry Association. The granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC at IICRC.org. Healthy Buildings America 2021, Honolulu, Hawaii, August 10 through 12, 2021. Learn more at hb2021-america.org. Our industry sponsors, AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and no-rush fee. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry pros and consumers at HealthyIndoors.com.
And Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions are back with us at graywolfsensing.com. All right, let's get back to the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Lisa Brusso. Um, Dr. Brusso, we, we kind of got the background all together. Now, I think this is where we get into putting a specific case together here where we actually look at using this in a specific situation. And I believe we're going to use a bus driver. So why don't you go ahead and tell John which slide you want and we'll take it from there. So um, I've worked, there are a number of cases in both of the um, papers, but this is just one example. And uh, bus drivers who are essential workers, actually I have to just say on a side, um, Occupational health and safety professionals are also considered essential workers, which is the first time that ever happened in my life, in my professional life. But uh, there are a lot of essential workers who are at risk and, and have experienced high rates of infection. Bus drivers are, and transportation workers are among them. So um, control band C, they, they actually fall, I think we have to go back a couple more slides because, right, this one. Because as, let me just illustrate how you end up with them being in control band C. So they interact with lots of people every day. Uh, they don't really know a lot about who's infectious or who's not, but if you have high rates of transmission going on in a community, you're certainly gonna end up with some people on your bus who are going to be infectious and you won't know and screening isn't gonna tell you. And they work long hours, eight to 10 hours. So in that context, they end up in E3, the E3, exposure E3 level. So if we go to the next slide, that shows you how you apply the exposure level in the risk rank to get this control band C. And just a reminder, the control band C means do a lot of source controls, do a lot of pathway controls, but you might end up having to use receptor controls at the end of the day. And so if we go to the next slide, that shows you, and these are just, you can, you can go ahead and push the buttons. These, this is an animated slide. Um, you know, these are just ideas. And some of them are based on what I know is really happening. Some are just my thoughts about what, what you might do. There have been places where they limit how many people can be on a bus. Uh, there certainly are lots of places that are requiring face coverings in, uh, in, in, in public, on buses, and many other places. I want to be clear, though, face coverings are not going to limit the emission of small particles, so they, they have a somewhat limited efficacy. Uh, you've got, so those are source controls. Uh, evaluate, eliminate the source if you can, or limit the amount of time, or limit the, uh, the number of them. And um, then you sort of, so that's a limited, all of that is sort of limited in terms of its effectiveness. So in, way, in the way of path controls, you could build a separate ventilated enclosure, for example, for the bus driver. And my understanding is a lot of buses, the air travels from the back to the front. So that means all that air full of infectious particles from pas passengers um, travels up towards the bus driver. And so they're the, actually at most risk in, in the context of being in a bus. And they're there for the longest time period. So one of solutions might be to give them a separately ventilated enclosure that ensures that they're breathing different air, cleaner, um, throughout the time period that they're on the bus. And I have seen pictures of buses where this has been done. So 
this does seem to be a solution some people are trying. And uh, if you live in Chicago and are familiar with riding buses, I, I rode many of them when I lived there, uh, sometimes bus drivers actually have to get out of their seat and help somebody or fix the door or do something else. And so if you have to leave, the bus driver has to leave that enclosed space uh, and you want to protect them from exposure, then the only way to do that is to have them wear a respirator if they're coming in contact with, with people riding on the bus. So that illustrates how you would use this control banding approach to select controls for somebody in control band C. So this would be a sort of a hierarchy. I mean, you mm -hmm. Of course, you'd want the source controls first, and then if you can't, if they're not enough to make it safe or whatever terminology you want to use, we go to the path controls, pathways. And if that's not enough, then we go to the receptor controls. And this could be done for any job, I guess. Absolutely. And that's the whole point of, of the control banding is that um, it can be used. How does this compare to like a, a, a hazard assessment or a risk assessment? Is that? Yep, it's so the same thing. It's just okay. it's more qualitative in nature, right? Because you don't have exposure limits and you don't have um, methods for measuring people's exposures. So you're making good guesses on the, you know, using your professional judgment to make some good estimates of what people's exposures are and how long those exposures occur. And then putting them, you know, sort of prioritizing them. Okay, let's go first to the, to the uh, chat. The Chinese put in controls, including higher level PPE towards Ebola requirements uh, with HCW. Should we be pushing higher level controls towards those required for Ebola? And would you yeah. perhaps share whether there should be a gradation based on the level of community transmission? Good question. Huh. Two questions. Well, so the higher level of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, absolutely. Um, I don't know if it needs to go all the way to the Ebola uh, because um, that was, you know, but Ebola was a problem if there's contact with any body emission. So you could find a live virus in, in most body fluids. And that's not entirely true for, for um, SARS-CoV-2. But, you know, if you're worried about contact hand-to-mouth transmission, then wearing gloves certainly makes sense. If you're worried, you should be worried about aerosol transmission and inhalation, so you should be worried about wearing a respirator. Uh, we do have some um, concern about ocular transmission and uh, possible in infection that way, so certainly wearing protection on your eyes, especially if you're working closely with patients, um, you know, whether it's goggles or face shield or something. Um, you know, I, I don't know about the whole rest of the gear. They, they basically covered over completely. And I think a good shower is probably just as good as wearing complete personal protective equipment. But, you know, healthcare workers are, are used to wearing lots of uh, PPE. So um, certainly a gown isn't a bad idea. But I don't know if you need a full Tyvek suit. What, you know, the, the thing is, though, um, most... What, what the Chinese did once they realized there was healthcare worker transmission is they did require respirators. And respirators are not being required by WHO, except in the case of healthcare workers performing aerosol, aerosol generating procedures, AGPs. And that's 
um, unfortunate and, and wrong, I think. They, um, I mean, anyone who's exposed to somebody who is potentially infectious should be wearing a respirator, any healthcare worker. And there's a lot of transmission going on in healthcare settings, uh, coworker to coworker, and with people who are not thought to be infectious, but perhaps are infected because they're asymptomatic. And so I'm thinking, I, I personally think that there should be more people in healthcare, workers, healthcare settings wearing respirators than are wearing them right now. And the only other thing I've said, uh, and I've said this in the, since the beginning, and I said this about Ebola as well, is that if you are doing aerosol generating procedures, you shouldn't be wearing an N95 looking face respirator. You should be wearing something better than that. I'm so glad you, you said that. <laughs> full face piece respirator, full elastomeric full face piece respirator, or better yet, a powder purifying respirator because it's more comfortable. It does seem like that's taking hold a little more. When I see these interviews and, and you know, video of people working in hospital, I am seeing more half masks, even more PAPR type respiratory protection. How about the second part of that question? I, I lost you there for a second, but what about the uh, gradation based on the level of community transmission? Um, I'm not sure I understand that question. Can you explain uh, that a little more? I'm thinking, I didn't ask it, but um, would you perhaps share whether there should be a gradation based on the level of community? So how would you adjust, I guess, uh, the control banding based on transmission in the community? Good point. Um, well, you know, think back to that um, bus driver example. And when I was talking about their exposure, you know, you if you have low community transmission, then the exposure level might be different than if you have lots of community transmission where the potential for anyone getting on the bus, it could be infectious. I would, that might push your exposure level or your, um, the likelihood of exposure up to a higher level. So that's how I would use it to adjust, um, it, it, you know, the, how to select exposure and then how to, the, how to use that to make decisions about the control band. And it might be that moving it up pushes you into a different band, although the bus driver's already in the highest band, but could push somebody else who's on a lower band up to a higher band. Gotcha. Now, I've got one that I know Cliff is going to love here. Other than humidity, can indoor air be treated with disinfectants or other types of products to limit the travel of aerosols from person to person? And Cliff's kind of a, he's done a lot of work on this, and especially in uh, sanitizing and disinfecting of spaces, but I don't think it's just that. I think it's also maybe using some other, uh, for instance, in, in a couple of weeks ago, Cliff had a, a humidifier going behind him in the room. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So, yeah, uh, and I'm not an indoor air specialist, but I will tell you, filters are great. And everything else is sort of silly in my mind. It's a waste of money. Um, so filter, if you're going to clean the air, all you need to do is put it through a really good filter. You don't need to worry that the, that the organism is killed because once it's on the filter, after a little bit of time with air running past it, it's going to be dead. It's not going to be viable. So um, a good portable air cleaner that generates, a, a, you know, a higher air, helps you generate a higher air exchange rate in the room is a really good um, 
purchased, I think. And I bought one for my home simply because if somebody gets sick and they have to isolate and you have to go in periodically maybe to interact with them, in addition to wearing my respirator, I admit I have a respirator, um, you, I would want that air to be as clean as I could get it and a, and a portable air cleaner with a good filter is, is going to be great. So that, but the whole, you know, the whole disinfecting of every surface multiple times a day, um, some of my, I and my, some of, some of my colleagues call this hygiene theater. It's really not necessary. I mean, it's overkill. It's uh, a waste of time. What we really should be focused on is, is washing our hands because what the, the problem really is, is transmission from hands that are contaminated to mouth or face or nose or eyes or whatever. If you wash your hands pretty frequently, then you can be assured that that's not going to happen. And you don't need to use a lot of crazy stuff on your hands. It, this organism is actually in, 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 you know, uh, rendered non-viable by soap and warm water. And, and experimental data have shown that. So the amount of spraying of insecticides and pesticides and, and sanitizing and all of this, it is what I think I call it. It's a hygiene theater. Okay, Cliff, you've got a follow-up, I think. Uh, I, I, I do. Um, I don't disagree that filtration is, is, is very important. Uh, it, it just seems that our society has a tendency to always go for the newest thing. And oftentimes it's the most expensive thing. And I agree with uh, the doctor about this hygiene theater, that everything doesn't have to be disinfected and continuously disinfected and, and so on and so forth. But in response to the question, um, the, the EPA, if you, and I'll, I'll put it into the blog, but the EPA has known for a long time, and this, this research goes back to the 1940s from England when during the, the bombing, people went into bomb shelters, which were primarily uh, subway stations that were underground, and they had thousands and thousands of people crowded really close together. And if you think about it, this is two decades after the 1918 uh, you know, flu epidemic or, or pandemic, and people were, were quite concerned. And what they did in these environments is they vaporized uh, propylene glycol and triethylene glycol and so on and so forth. And for the most part, these are uh, food-grade products. You know, triethylene is not, but propylene and dipropylene are. And that's what's commonly used now in vaping. And by adding that to the uh, increase in humidity that was in the air, they found that it was really, really effective. So I'll put, it, again, the information in the blog. It's been in past blogs. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put a complete list of references and you can kind of read up on it, make your own decision. But I do think you should just read the information and, and make your own decision. Let me, uh, let me ask you a follow-up uh, on the use of portable air filtration devices. I have seen uh, industrial hygienists and others uh, express concerns about the exhaust from the portable air filtration devices possibly re-entraining viral particles that are, you know, that have settled out of the air and so on. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. I don't know how that would happen. 
So, <laughs> you know, if you're moving air through the air cleaner, um, and you, you, you're basically causing a circulation to occur, right? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm not that worried really about entrainment, re-entrainment re as much as I am about capture of what's in the air. And in most homes, right, or even residential, like my condo building, um, you know, the air changes per hour are very low. One, two, maybe, if we're lucky, right? So you put a portable air cleaner in a room, you could enhance to three or four air changes per hour. That's not a bad thing. That ensures that you're, you're turning over the air more frequently, and with an air cleaner, you're causing, uh, you're capturing particles, actually. And once captured, as I said, they're, they're there. They're not going to get emitted from, I mean, all these particles are pretty large. You know, I use that term in quotes because I think of particles less than about five microns as being small, but <laughs> some people think those are large. But these are particles that are pretty, they're captured with pretty high efficiency in, an, in a HEPA high efficiency filter. So, um, and everyone worries about the size of the virus, but the size of the virus is not the thing we should be worried about. It's the size of the particles that we generate. And those are usually maybe as small as 0.5, but usually around one or greater in size. Okay. And those are captured with very high efficiency. Okay. I've got, uh, Cliff, you got a follow-up, and then I, I think we've got to go to our roundup and wrap things up. Yeah, I do. I'll, I'll do my roundup question now, Joe. But well, a, a couple of uh, shows back, Joe, I don't know if you remember, but uh, one, it was the person, he was calling us from his cabin and, you know, up in the mountains, and, and he made a comment about the corner of the living room or whatever. And the bottom line is, uh, what, what he said, doctor, is that th this corner of the living room uh, is the most unlikely place. Uh, and, and what ha what happens is that's where people put these air cleaners. They put it in the corner yeah. of the living room. And what right. happens is th they're living and working away from it. It probably should be on their desk or within their breathing range or, or close yeah. to them because they do have very small uh, you know, zones of efficacy. So That's I just true. wanted to, to, to just add that comment. Yeah, you're exactly right. Where you put an air cleaner matters a lot. I agree. Let's, let, let me finish up with this um, topic and, and a little general discussion. Um, we didn't talk much about face masks versus respirators and, and so on. And I know you're not a big proponent of face masks. You, you, you you recognize because of your years of experience and research with respirators that there are issues with these face masks. But what I'd like to kind of do is get you to talk to listeners about, because we're going to, we're going to be having face mask requirements for at least probably the next six months. What can we do to do a better job or to, to, what can we do to ensure that the face masks that people are going to be wearing anyway or at least giving them some help? Hmm. Good question. Um, you know, the problem is with face coverings are made out of cloth or woven material, and that's what I call, we call a mechanical filter. And the only way to get a mechanical filter to work really well is to have lots of layers. And the problem with increasing the layers is it gets, then you increase the breathing resistance. And so the problem is that I have with this is you know, all the, and I've 
looked at lots of studies, so-called studies of face coverings, and they always recommend at least three level, you know, three layers of cloth. And sometimes they say you should put like a vacuum cleaner bag filter in between. I have to tell you, those things, no one will wear them. They're, they're very hard to breathe through. What they're going to wear are these one or two layer face coverings that, and they, you know, they have to be cool, right? So people are buying these things that look, have messages or pictures on them. But these things are very, very ineffective. So my job, I haven't been focused on trying to get them to be better or more efficient because I don't think that's possible. And I really don't think that people will wear them even if I could design them. And there are plenty of them, plenty of good designs out there that could be better. But my focus has been to say, certainly you should wear your face covering because it's required. But please just don't count on it. Don't expect it to protect you for very long or when you're close up to someone. Don't spend a lot of time in, you know, small, uh, poorly ventilated spaces with lots of people whose infection status you don't know. They're not, and please don't think of them as replacing uh, or being a replacement for physical distancing, for example. So, um, you know, as much as the CDC has espoused their magical properties, that is all it is, is magical thinking. Face coverings are not going to flatten the curve. They are not going to prevent people from getting an infectious dose. The t- they, they limit your time to infectious dose by, by, by minutes, not by hours. And so it really is important that people just understand that these are not anything to count on. But I don't say people shouldn't wear them. I simply say, be careful when you do. Continue to do all those other things you should be doing. And before we go, how do you see the progression of things as we get back to normal? Um, what do we need to be careful about and what should we focus more on, I guess? And, and pick or choose whichever you'd like to answer. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a ventilation. I mean, you're, 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 one of your focuses is on ventilation, I'm sure, as an, as an IAQ radio. I personally think we have to do a lot more and more and better with respect to ventilation. And I when I... I talk about ventilation, I mean under the ceiling, not in the HVAC system. We've got some good recommendations for HVAC systems from ASHRAE, but we need to do better with respect to what should we do to protect people using ventilation in indoor spaces. And I mean all the indoor spaces that that exist, ranging from, you know, uh, offices all the way to manufacturing settings. And it's different and it's complicated, but... I think we all have the tools as industrial hygienists to make that work. We just have to put our minds together and, and maybe do a little research and, and come up with some better recommendations for ventilation in indoor spaces. Excellent. And before we go, is there anything you'd like to add? No, thank you. These have been great questions. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Lisa Brasso. We really appreciate Lisa, I got it right this time. All right, Dr. Brasso. <laughs> No Thanks worries. so much. It's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you a little bit and get to know you a little bit over the last couple of days here. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest. I also want to thank the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, my co-host. Uh, John, you got to have faith at the controls. By the way, next week, um, we've got Dr. 
Jay Portnoy uh, from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. We're going to talk to him about COVID with children and also how that's how the general COVID issues have affected their hospital. Plus, Dr. Portnoy is an expert on uh, mold and uh, mold allergies, so we're going to talk to him a little bit about that as well. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.